Hi friends, my name is Kevin. Welcome to the Via Media Podcast. Justice is a core aim of many spiritual and religious traditions. The idea that to heal a broken world requires condemning behaviors that violate the humanity of another human being. And the systems of punishment that we put in place to ensure that people are kept accountable is what we call our criminal justice system. The problem is that our attitudes towards those who commit crimes violate the other spiritual commitment, compassion. And our natural impulse towards punishment and retribution create systems and practices that are themselves unjust, creating a profoundly inhumane system that perpetuates the suffering for those in the criminal justice system and for society as a whole. Fritzi Horstman is the founder and executive director of the Compassion Prison Project, a grassroots organization whose vision is to see all prisons transformed from punitive human warehouses into rehabilitative environments. Her organization is bringing trauma-informed practices, such as adverse childhood experiences, to the criminal justice system, and not just to those incarcerated, but also to guards and officers who themselves suffer from the trauma of their work. Fritzi is advancing a philosophy of humanity that is an exemplar of the Via Media ethic, that all people share a common humanity. And we ought to move away from our punitive and retributive attitudes and embrace a redemptive, healing, and holistic way of compassion as the way forward for our social and political systems. She is one of my heroes in the work of inspiring a curious and hopeful humanity. Here is my conversation with Fritzi Horstman. Fritzi, thank you so much for accepting our invitation. I am so delighted to have a conversation with you uh, this evening. Thank you so much, Kevin. It's such an honor to be here and, and to be with you. It's such a great day. Okay, so uh, we're gonna go through several questions that I have. I wanna start with what it is that you do with Compassion Prison Project. Talk a little bit about the how, and then I'd really like to get to the why, the meat of that undergirds everything. And from everything that I've seen of what you do, I wanna introduce my audience to this amazing work that you're doing and to inspire all of us towards a different approach towards not only the criminal justice system, but towards compassion and towards ourselves as well. So first question, how did a Los Angeles Grammy award winning filmmaker get to starting the Compassion Prison Project and what is it? So, um... I've been always worried about people that aren't um, in good shape. When I was a little girl, I used to take photos of homeless people. I used to take the bus and it would, it would go right by the, uh, the prostitutes on 8th Avenue in New York City. And so I've always kind of had this, my eye on what's happening in the world mm. um, societally. And then um, in 2018, I read a book called The Body Keeps the Score, and I found out I was traumatized. I didn't know I was traumatized. Mm. I was 56 years old, and I found out that I had extensive trauma, and that trauma affected my behavior in the world. Mm. A month later, I walked into a prison, Kern Valley State Prison in California, to volunteer with um, a group called Hustle 2.0. I walked in there, and I realized that their behavior was due to their trauma. It wasn't that they're bad people. It was just due to their trauma. And they didn't know, they didn't know they were trauma traumatized like I didn't know. 
um, there's a quote I love by Jane Stevens. She says, it, it's, we're living in an ocean of trauma and nobody knows they're wet. And yeah. that's what's, that's what occurred to me that day. I cried the entire day. I just realized what we've been doing, you know, and I don't ever want to blame anybody what we're doing because the minute you start blaming people double down on, on righteousness and trying to be right. So we really have to be careful as we navigate this to, to bring compassion, to bring awareness, trauma awareness, but also just awareness that these are humans really viable, valuable people that are living there right. that deserve a chance. I would say a chance, not a second chance. There was never a chance. Mm. Um, so when I was in there, I was just, I was like, okay, I got to do something. Um, I wrote in my journal, I am obligated to do something. And so then I just started thinking, how do I do something? And that prison, I asked the prison if I could come and do a pilot with them. And they said, sure, which was great. Um, and so uh, January 6, 2019, I walked back in with my curriculum, my curriculum, which I didn't know what I was doing, but um, the men inside really taught me what I was doing, which was they needed to learn about their trauma. They needed to learn about the mechanics of trauma. What happens to our brain, body, and spirit when it's mm. traumatized? Why the prefrontal cortex goes offline? Why we get into fight or flight? What are the ramifications of being in fight or flight 24 seven, like mm. you are in prison? like the officers are in prison. So all these all these things are really important for them to start being aware of what's going on within mm. their bodies. Why are they being, why when they hear a key from an officer, you know, four, 40 cells away, are they just suddenly tensed up? Mm. So, you know, it's just like, like meditation and consciousness, you know, the consciousness movement, being aware of your breathing, being aware of your, your thoughts, it's really the same thing, but I'm, I'm using it through the lens of trauma. And um, because when I learned I was traumatized, I started learning that my behavior was due to, because my mother used to hit me when I wasn't aware that I was going to be hit. So I've been braced all my life for somebody to come and hit me. Um, and so that awareness helped me navigate my behavior and started, I started calming down and I started it affected, you know, my behavior affected all my relationships with my friends, with my family, with my son, with my husband. And, you know, I started seeing when I would get into that, that no go zone. And, and I was able to say, okay, I got to step away from here. Now I have to get off the phone and step away, or I have to go into another room or, mm -hmm. and, and I, because you don't want to get to that place. You don't want to get to that place where you're going to say things or do things. And that's the, he, that's what happens. People do things. They end up killing people. They end up, you know, saying things they regret for the rest of their lives. Right. And so this is this is the kind of mess we found ourselves in from centuries of trauma, from from the beginning of time. Really, mm. I mean, that's what we're unpacking now. That's what I, I think is our one of the callings of our societies to yeah. unpack this trauma. Yeah. How do you define compassion then through that lens? So I'm going to just give you this Pima Chodron quote, which to me is says it all. She says, compassion is not a relationship between the healer and the wounded. It's a relationship between equals. Only when we know our own darkness well can we be present with the darkness of others. 
compassion becomes real when we recognize our shared humanity. So that's the, um, it's, I saw my darkness, which is also, uh, which on the other side of that is my light. And so no shame about my darkness because that's just something I, it's generational, it's ancestral, it's in the, it's in the water we drink, it's everywhere. So, um, no shame in the darkness, but also the light is there. So let's let's bring out the light. Yeah, and you're touching on something that I think is just so fundamental to your work, but also a fundamental challenge of what your work is, because I sense that the work that you're doing specifically in the prison system um, is fundamentally a worldview shift. It's a radically different philosophy. I mean, there's a lot of rhetoric, and I want to ask you about how you understand the political rhetoric that also happens in our, our cultural rhetoric. People who are in prison deserve to be there. Um, if you do bad things, you should be punished. Um, if you're in jail, then somehow you're just doing your time. And this is, this is you, punishment is meant in many ways, the avenue by which you become a rehabilitated you know citizen you have to go through that kind of thing um so i sense from you i mean you're, you're touching on this and i'd love to hear you elaborate a little bit more of this radical philosophical worldview shift that you are attempting to advance into this world you're doing it through this specific word but it i mean what an incredible quote to recognize that compassion is a relationship between equals that the darkness we we all hold this particular darkness. So um, I, I don't know exactly what question I asked in there, but what is that shift? What's the philosophical shift that you're attempting to advance? Um, and then attached to that is, I would really love to hear how then do you respond to all the negative rhetoric that is in our culture regarding incarcerated persons when you're trying to advance this shift? So I'm going to bring up a thing called Ubuntu. Uh, that's the first part of this philosophical uh, like basis that we're working under is that my humanity depends on your humanity. If you're not being treated well, then I can't rest at night. I can't, I know something's wrong. And I've actually known something's wrong with the prison system for years. And, um, you know, I know something's off like with the homeless people with um, the poverty. So, um, and I also just want to say, I want to just bring this out to make sure we have, we say that, that prisons are evidence of societal neglect. So it's, it's societal neglect. It's our neglect. It's, it's my piece of the neglect. I have to take ownership of this. And um, I'm not saying that, you know, we're all, I guess we are, we are all involved in this because somehow we've allowed it to be. And I think the shift that I'm re requesting is that, first off, we see the humanity of the people living in prison. We have to see that. We also have to see that they're extremely injured. Their brains, their bodies, their spirits are very injured, and they need they need um, restoration. They don't they don't need more punishment. So, um, and the the only way we're going to have a cohesive society is if we go into the places where we've neglected. Um, neglected these communities, these families, but it, essentially we're neglecting ourselves because um, we've justified our behavior because they've done something wrong. Mm. Hypocritically, too, I would add, because we've all done things that are wrong. 
we've all lied. We've all, we're, none of us are, you know, that Jesus quote, you know, the stone casting the stones. We're all there. We're all, I mean, when does a drunk, someone who's driving home drunk and he kills somebody, when does he become a bad person? He wasn't bad when he walked into the bar that night. He was probably medicating himself because he was probably in distress. So when is that shift from, oh, you killed somebody, but you didn't mean it. And there are people who kill people and they mean it, but when do they shift into becoming a monster and deserving of punishment? When does a son, your second, if my son got in prison for whatever he did, I mean, you know, he doesn't have his prefrontal cortex right now because he's 16 years old. You know, I have no idea when he leaves the house what he's going to get himself into. When does he become a bad person because he's injured somebody? Yeah. And we've all injured people. What is the what is the divorce rate in this in this country? We've all, you know, said hurtful things and done hurtful things. So to point fingers at one person is to deny your own being accomplice in this um, in this mess yeah. that we're in. Yeah. Well, I want to hit you with the the hard question because if somebody becomes a monster when I'm the victim of your behavior. So the question would be in a world where there's a strong retributive impulse, like I want, if I was on the receiving end of that drunk driver, something has changed in me now. Um, and so I have now suffered greatly at the hands of somebody else's actions regardless and i almost don't care whether or not that person was traumatized i you know i don't care about their background i don't care about these things i just care that my loved one got hurt or i got hurt or someone got killed as a result of that so my question for you would be then how does compassion meet retribution in the lives of those who have been victims of violent crime and just spread it all across the board what do you say to people to whom they have they, they are currently still suffering the loss of the actions of these people who have committed these crimes. Absolutely. Um, first of all, I, I'd say I'm extremely sorry for what happened to you. And, um, and it's not okay. I say that and all of my work does not dis disregard what happened, happened to the victims. This is one of the things we, we really, expect from our students is accountability. And I can get into that in a moment, but I, what I really want to address here is retribution is an instinctual response to pain, to violence. If someone hurts you, you immediately want to get, get them back. So I get that, you know, um, you can see it when someone cuts you off, um, or you can see it when someone uh, rubs, up, rubs up against you and doesn't say, I'm sorry you immediately are taken aback. So that's just that's just a minor um, example, but that's what our brain does. We go right into fight or flight. And so the criminal justice system is based on fight or flight. Everybody has stayed in that, that place of not being in their cortex, being in, I'm gonna fight or I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna run. And you know, that's what victims wanna do. And, and I totally get that. That's what I did with my mother when she would hurt me. I would want to fight back until I could, couldn't, I would have to freeze or just run away. Um, but the thing is, we're evolving as a, as a species, we're evolving as a society, and we have the ability to get into our cortex. You know, we can say, okay, 
what happened here is not okay. This is horrendous. You've killed somebody. This is, and this is the other thing. Prisons are, and I don't think they should be prisons anymore, but right now prisons are necessary. People need timeouts. They need a place where they cannot be in society um, because they're damaging, they're violent to themselves, they're violent to others. And until that behavior can be um, worked on and examined mm -hmm. and and transformed, um, I think prisons are a good a good holding place. I don't think what we're doing at all is what we should be doing, but there just definitely needs to be a timeout. I don't think for the rest of your life. I don't think for you know these exorbitant sentences, but I think they're they they have value in to some degree. Um, but what has to happen is from the minute they walk in, we have to say, what happened to you, my friend? This is not okay. You've hurt yourself. You're hurting other people. What's going on? And let's get some help. Let's yeah. get here and let's get into this. And that's, that's what I feel like that's what we can do. And then, then we bring the victims in and, and the victims, you know, if you're in a restorative justice circle, the victims tell the, the person who did the harm what they need to feel better hmm. what do you need how can we how can we how can we make up for your dead father how can we make up for your sister who's no longer here or your wife how can we do this hmm. and that's that's the agony of what the people have done in prison most of the people i'm working with have murdered somebody so they're dealing with that agony that shame and um but it shouldn't be done alone in, in isolation. It needs to be done in the community. It needs to be done with the victim or done, if the victim doesn't want to, that's fine too. But there has to be, um, there has to be accountability, like I said. That's, so that's when we start thinking, okay, you can't bring this person back, but what can you do? What can you do, Sam, whatever his name is or her name? What can you do? You know, and so it can be as, as small as I'm going to get my GED. I'm going to, I'm going to be a better man. I'm going to take care of my child. I know, and I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but that's a huge, these are huge steps for some people. Mm. And so it, the transformations that I'm asking them to do are little steps. But when you, when you have nothing, when you've lived in the amount of violence and, and um, abject horror that most of these people have lived in, these are huge steps. And so, um, you know, to have a connection in some way, you know, we've been thinking about doing a website where uh, the people who've committed crimes can write to their, um, their victims and, and send letters to them so that the victims can find the letter and, say, and see that, that this person is working on this. Um, I mean, I've heard some horrendous things and and like one guy says, I can't forgive myself because to forgive myself would condone what I've done. And I can't, I can't condone that. Um, there are people that are still unable to calm down, who, who can't settle down, who can't. Um, who, sorry about the dog. Um, who are, um, who can't settle down and who can't, take ownership of their crime yet. Mm -hmm. But as we, as we, you know, as I keep going into prisons and talking to them and reminding them of who they are, um, A Course in Miracles says that we don't have, 
um, the universe or God doesn't have to forgive you because he knows you're already innocent. Mm. Forgiveness is for yourself so that you can remember who you are, remember your innocence, mm. because that's mm. what I, I go in there telling them, I know you've done something bad, but I also know that you're fundamentally perfect. Yeah. And um, yeah, so go ahead. Oh, I was just going to, I mean, I so love and appreciate the nuance by which you approach this. I mean, in popular rhetoric and popular culture, it seems to be either these are wonderful human beings and why don't we get them rehabilitated, you know, and then on the other hand, they are criminals and they should be punished for the rest of their lives. And the nuance that you have is both of those things can be true. There can be accountability for the actions, but also a compassionate humanity towards the individual who themselves is in many ways a victim of circumstances outside of their control that have added to or processed part of their own psychological and emotional navigation of this world. Um, I wanted to, uh, if you if you don't mind, share a little clip of what it is that you do in the prisons um, as a little uh, introduction to our audience so that they can really feel and sense the work that you do. This is a very small clip um, from your Step Inside the Circle um, exercise that you did. And then I want to ask you about trauma and ACE score. So let's take a look at this. It's time now, everyone. We're going to do the Compassion Trauma Circle. Is everyone ready to face their past with compassion? Is that a yes? While you were growing up during your first 18 years of life, if a parent or other adult in the household often or very often would swear at you, insult you, put you down or humiliate you, step inside the circle. If a parent or other adult in the household often or very often pushed, grabbed, slapped, or threw something at you, step inside the circle. If a parent or other adult in the household often or very often ever hit you so hard that you had marks or were injured, step inside the circle. If you often felt that no one in your family loved you or thought you were important or special, step inside the circle. If your family lived in extreme poverty, step inside the circle. Step inside the circle. Step inside the circle. Step inside the circle. There is no shame. There is no shame. There is no shame. I want to ask you, what is trauma? And how does your understanding of trauma? Actually, two questions. What is trauma? What is an ACE score? And how do those two things inform the work that you do? So um, I like Gabor Mate's definition of trauma, which is Trauma isn't what happened to you. It's what um, trauma. I kind of forgot what he said. Trauma isn't um, isn't what happened to you. It's what you what happens to you afterwards. It's not the. It's not what. It's not like getting hit. It's what happens in your body after you're hit, or after you're hit by a car or whatever that is. So it's it's the the aftermath of the event, and um, so. Um, 
like my mother would yell at me and criticize me most of my childhood. And that actually informed a lot of the, the things that I did as an adult. And it, it, it kind of has a, it has an effect in, in the, in your behavior, which is, which is why, what I said earlier. So an ACE score, so uh, Dr. Vince Filetti and Dr. Robert Anda of Kaiser Permanente and the CDC, they came up, they discovered that these middle-class people in San Diego had these top 10 events that happened to them, um, that these adverse childhood experiences that happened to them, that's what an ACE is, an adverse childhood experience, that happened to them in childhood that um, later on in life, showed up as having adverse um, health outcomes. Um, so I'm going to just list the top 10 ACEs just, just so your audience knows what um, adverse childhood experiences are. So physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, physical neglect, emotional neglect, parents or caregiver addicted to drugs or alcohol, parents or caregiver um, mentally ill, suicidal or depressed, household member, um, going to prison, parents divorced or separated, and domestic violence. Of those 10, I have eight of them. And so that's a high, that's a high A score. But with people in prison, and I'll get into some of the specifics, but with people in prison, that doesn't include living in a violent neighborhood, having traumatic brain injury. 80% of the people in prison, up to 80% have a traumatic brain injury. Um, living in foster care, being um, in juvenile halls, um, watching people get murdered on the street, all these all these things that the, those men kept stepping into that I wasn't stepping into. So um, when we talk about ACE scores, it's oh, racism is a huge one, is a huge one. Imagine being judged just for how you came out into the world, just the way you look, you're being judged. Um, racism, um, you know, all the other isms that people are judging you for just because of the way way you are. I mean, that to me is a crime in itself. Um, and I think um, African-Americans have a lot more um, adverse health outcomes, I believe because of, of racism and some, uh, some of the ACEs that they've endured. Um, we have generational trauma from slavery. We also have it from Native Americans, all this, all, you know, I'm part Cherokee and I'm part Irish, so I have, um, I have those, those things that are in my in my blood. So with the Aces, what I found is that in the United States, nine, um, 64% have it of the population have at least one Ace. In prison, it's 98%, and you add those other things, and it's 100%. Um, in the U.S., about 12 to 15% have four or more Aces. In prison, that's about 80%. And then 64% of the people that we surveyed, we surveyed over 3,000 people, 64% of the people we surveyed have six or more ACEs. So with six or more ACEs, you lose 20 years of your life if you don't um, deal with those ACEs, if you you know, if you know stay in your traumatized state like my parents did. Um, like I'm learning how to deal with my ACEs now. So I think, you know, 20 years, that, that would mean I would die probably in the next few years. Um, but I think I'm going to live a long life because I'm, I'm, I'm learning how to regulate my body and I'm meditating and I'm doing heart math and I'm eating fruits and vegetables mostly. And those are the things I'm working on. So, and 
not drinking coffee because that that activates you know my fight or flight response so it's really about learning learning how to heal yourself and but awareness is the key first thing because if you if you don't know you're if you don't know you're traumatized how are you going to know you need to stop yeah. all this stuff you're doing <laughs> yeah it, it, yeah um i wanted to ask what is the goal what is your aim i think there's so you have all of this all these tools all this knowledge what's the hope at the end where what are you driving for um my my vision is all prisons become healing centers that's it um and everyone is trauma-informed our mission statement is creating trauma-informed prisons and communities because you know when i work with the men or women and women in prison when they learn about their aces they they get these epiphanies like oh my gosh i have seven aces my son has seven aces because of what I've done. And one guy said, I'm going to stop that now. He's not going to have any more aces mm -hmm. now. So, you know, and a lot of people say, why are you doing it in prison? Why aren't you going to the communities? And it's like, because I don't know how to go to the communities. I know, and prisons are, are localized. You can just, you can, there's 3,000 men in one California prison. So, you know, we can reach a lot of families by working with those men. Um, plus, you know, the thing is they've been neglected the most. The people in prison have been neglected the most. I mean, same with homelessness. I don't want to say, and poor people, but this is a place of neglect that we really need to come in and, and put our attention to, but when you have it, when you put attention to something, it changes. Right. So, and that's what, that's what I'm planning on doing. That's the, what I am doing. The strategy that I feel is needed, and I'm kind of curious if you could speak to this, is not just working with those who are incarcerated, but also working with those who are actually policing, those who are actually guards, those who are actually in the criminal justice system, in the legislative area, and then in the communities at large. Um, your work is focused specifically with those inmates. Is that correct? Or are you expand? Mm -hmm. do you have expansive work also with those who are you know, in those other spheres. Absolutely. Um, we are, we have just, we're developing our curriculum for officers. We've made presentations at three different prisons to, to many officers um, talking about the trauma that they're experiencing. I don't know if you know this, but the life expectancy of an officer is 59 years old. So that presents as having six aces. So the amount of stress and PTSD that they're experiencing is off the charts. So it, it's, it's not just the people, and you can't, you cannot just say, okay, we have all these regulated people, um, inmates or prison residents, but you don't have regulated officers. So everybody needs to learn about trauma, what it does and have this awareness so that every, so this can shift, um, now with the government, with the politicians, um, we just got a grant from from the government, from the from the budget committee of California, um, they just gave us money so that we can bring this trauma information to the prisons in California. That's so fantastic for the next three years, yeah. But but it's not nearly enough. Just sure. so you know. <laughs> oh, it's, sure, sure. Yeah, in many ways, the the phraseology is it helpful? The adverse childhood experiences, but what you're describing is that these experiences actually carry through. I mean, these. People are experiencing trauma over and over and over, even through childhood. And I'm imagining that the 
kind of traumas um, and experiences that they are having outside of childhood, let's say post 18 years old, have have just compounding effects as well. Can what's the uh, what are the compounding effects? You have adverse childhood experiences. You're trying to navigate your way through this world. We just had a conversation with somebody talking about attachment theory and attachment strategies and how you try to make relationships. So you have this strategy, you're, you make a mistake, you break the law, and now you're in a system that just continues to traumatize. It's compounding trauma over and over and over and over again. So I don't know. I'm I'm kind of just lamenting out loud and hoping that you get way more money to keep doing and expanding what you're doing here. But I mean, what are you? Well, yeah, I call those apes, not aces, but apes, adverse prison experiences. Mm. And mm -hmm. I, I kind of created my own little test, but I don't use it. But, you know, it's the same. It's physical abuse. It's emotional abuse. It's sexual abuse. It's physical neglect and emotional neglect. That's the first five right out off the gate. Um, you know, solitary, solitary, and they call it ADSEG, or they have these other nice words for it, but solitary is just as detrimental for the officers as it is for the, for the prison residents. Mm -hmm. You can only work there for two years because it, it's bad for you. Why? Because Ubuntu, because my humanity depends on your humanity. If I'm treating you inhumanely, I'm treating myself inhumanely. And that's, so that's the thing. And that's the thing we have to remember we have these res, you know, repositories of places where we know people are being treated badly. So we know that we're in, by just by not doing anything, that's affecting us as well. Um, I, I don't think that's something that our consciousness has captivated yet. Our desire for a scapegoat, our desire to punish, our punitive nature, the idea, and it's also self. Uh, adulating. I'm, I'm not a criminal. I'm not a prisoner. So therefore, I can kind of distance myself from the uh, deleterious humanity. I'm not that. So let, let me put that in there. And what you're saying is this radical shift of worldview, that if we were to actually extend this kind of compassion, not just niceties, but this kind of deep, humanitarian, empathetic, trauma-informed, compassionate response to people who have made mistakes, then we actually find our sense of healing. We actually find our sense of humanity as well. That's exactly it. And that's, I think it's the key to the whole, the whole puzzle of being alive is what we do. And it, it's, you know, um, Course in Miracles, I just keep going back to it. Um, in every minute, we can make a, a choice of love or a choice of fear. And a miracle is going from fear to love. That's it. And so people want to blame people because, because it's, easier, it's easier to blame someone than to take accountability for your, own, for your own crap. And I do it all the time. I'm always wanting to blame my husband. You know, you didn't do this. But it's like, no, I didn't do it. You know, it's like. And we always, we double down. It's the thing is we blame and then we double down on our righteousness. And, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to blame any, I don't want to blame anybody. That's the thing is because I'm, I'm taking responsibility for my own crap. I'm working on myself. That's, I mean, that's, as Gandhi says, you know, be the change you want to see, because that's the only way it's really going to change anyway, is if we, we do our own work.
And we really say, you know, I did something crappy and I'm really sorry. Yeah. Because that changes everything. Instead of saying, I did something crappy, but I'm not going to admit it because then I'll look bad and I don't want to look bad. And then, I, then I'm just not going to feel good about myself and I don't feel good about myself anyway. And so that's what, that's what all of this is. We're in that, I don't feel good and I don't want, I, it, it feels good to blame somebody else too. Um, so it's really, it's about vulnerability across the board. It's about us all being vulnerable about ourselves and taking that deep, that deep, scary look that, yeah, we've, we've messed up, but also we're really awesome. And it's the, it's that, it's that once we go to that place of I, I'm accountable for my own yuckiness, but I'm also looking at myself in the mirror and I am pretty awesome. It's those two things, and it, those two things are only possible if you're vulnerable. If you only take that le- that leap and say, "Okay, you know, I have four cars and I don't need them," or whatever it is, or um, I was really bad to my wife, I was really mean to her, but to apologize would really make me look weak and 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 fallible. But if I do, I'm going to have a relationship with this woman that I love. And so that's what's at stake here. It's it's like Brene Brown says it best. Do you want to do you want to be right or you want to get it right? Hmm. And I think it's the time that we just start getting it right. I think we can just do it. We can just say, let's just get it right now. What we're doing in prisons, it, we got to get it right. What we're doing with the homeless, we got to get it right. We know we know what it is. They're traumatized. The homeless are traumatized. People, the poor people are traumatized, and the people who made those laws are traumatized. So. That's what we're dealing with, a traumatized nation that doesn't, that doesn't want to take accountability. And we're asking people in prison to do it. So that's what's, that's what's always so ironic to me is that the accountability. We, have, we say, yes, you must be accountable for your crimes. But we've all made crimes. We've all done crimes. I've yelled at my dog. That's a crime. I've yelled at my son. I've traumatized my son. But I take accountability as much as I can every day because I've, I've looked at myself and I am still fantastic. I am still fantastic and I did mess up and it doesn't take away from how great I am that I screwed up. I'm human. We're here to do this. We're here to figure out what it is to be human and it making mistakes, failing, um, having a bad hair day, getting fat, getting thin. It's all part of the deal. And, you know, let's stop looking outside and, and finding fault and seeing the faults that are inside and just going, okay, I'm going to work on this. And in the meantime, I'm going to help, help those people in prison. I think I'm always struck by just how profoundly human your work is. And I think part of the reason why I love these conversations is I think I hear prison ministry or I think Compassion Prison Project or people who are working in the, with the incarcerated. And there's, there's a certain special sauce in there of which, you know, those people are just incredibly gifted, talented, or trained to do special things. But what you just described is just a profoundly human experience. And in, and in many ways, just embracing the very brute humanity that we all share is fundamentally the pathway by which you can do your work. Now, there's obviously specialized training. There's obviously specialized knowledge that you have to have. But the fundamental root of it is to embrace our own humanity, our own insecurity, our own vulnerability, our own fears and concerns, our own sins, our, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I just wish that more of us would be, um, would extend that perspective and that consciousness that, you know, people who 
are anywhere in any segment of society are as human as we are. And that is what I see you doing, which is profoundly simple and yet so profoundly beautiful and amazing and redemptive and wonderful. Um, I want to shift to just one question, then we're going to get to some questions from Slido that came in. Um, I come from a Christian background. I'd love for you to share if you have a little bit of a spiritual background and how that informs your work. But in the Christian um, kind of community, there's been a push towards prison ministries. It, uh, Chuck Colson was a famous person that launched a whole bunch of prison ministries. And I wanted you to critique the work that you do. And I, I know this might be leading a little bit of a leading question, but I've all, I, I wonder what is the effectiveness of ministries that are predicated on a particular religious or spiritual identity and objectives versus what you do? Or is there a third way that I'm not perceiving yet? And I, and in many ways, I'll, I'll tell you my heart, uh, what I'm trying to get at, is if people who are driven by their faith to participate in prison ministries, they should be better informed with X. What is the X? Fritzy, I want you to help everybody in this particular sense. Well, I, I just a couple. There's a lot in there, um, but I I think all all ministries in prison are great. I think I think we really need to understand there's a bigger there's a bigger power out there. I I do believe that that is my own spiritual. Um, I do I do have like a, I, I do think Jesus is pretty amazing, and I but I also think you know Buddha's pretty great. I think. Um, all of them, all of them, you know, wherever there's truth and, and love and compassion and, and humility and, and grace, I'm there, man. I'm in. I'm, I'm so in. Um, I think the, 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 the thing about Compassion Prison Project is it's, it's not secular. So um, people don't have to feel like they're, you know, they're betraying their religion or their mother or their, you know, all the things that go with religion. Um, so it's, it's kind of, it's for every, it's kind of an open door. That's the only, but what I would say for people that do go to, um, you know, the prison ministries of their, of their, of their religion, um, learn about trauma, learn about, you know, what happens to you when you're traumatized? What happens? Why, why can't I digest food anymore? Why, you know, why is my skin erupting in a rash? Because, you know, you have this fire inside of you, this trauma that wants to get out. I mean, so that's what we've got. That's what we're dealing with is it's just the behavior of people that are so traumatized. And I hear it over and over again, the people in prison, they say, I thought violence was normal. I thought mm -hmm. that's what you do. And so they, it's like, it's, it's education, it's re-educating them and it's reparenting them. And so that's really what I feel like I am in a sense is just a, a parent to say, oh, wait, but a parent who says, I love you and look at you, you are a beautiful man. You're an incredible woman. Look at you. Look at, look at that drawing you made. They still, you know, it's talk about arrested development. And I think that's what trauma does is it, it arrests us at, at very young ages. And so there's still, there are developmental milestones that have not been met for these men and women in prison. They haven't, they haven't basically crawled. They still haven't, in, in a sense, they, they still need to, get a crayon and and do a drawing they need to be told that you're a special young man you're a special boy and so that's you know that's what i say to the people going into prisons in different ministries is 
you know, you're going in and parenting them and you're socializing them. That's what they need socializing. That's what why solitary is so devastating is because the brain has been neglected already. Then we add solitary on top of it. It has, the person has no sense of self. Um, That's what, that's what a lot of these men didn't get. Women, I say men because 95% of the people in prison are men. Mm-hmm. Most of them didn't get the serve and return that most babies need, that they that their parents need to constantly say, yes, yes, look what you're doing. Yes, of course, my baby. They need that. That's what the brain needs to wire and to get socialized, to have empathy, to be able to see, oh, there's my mom. She loves me. I love her. They need that exact dynamic and that's what that's what we're doing when we go into prison and that's what i ask everybody to do when they go is is help rewire our our nation basically i so appreciate that very much i I feel like part of the work and the ethic that we have uh with via media is to recognize that there's a really important place for the scientific for understanding the psychology but there's also a place for the spirituality and for recognizing that there is something outside of us and that the two don't have to be diametrically opposed to one another. They can work hand in hand. And I really appreciate that nuance. Um, I wanted to share with you, I um, this conversation is more personal to me than perhaps other conversations because I have a friend who's currently serving uh, what I believe is something like 25 to life. And uh, in my correspondence with him, he's he's written me several letters. All of them have been incredibly frustrating and like I, I I sit in my comfortable home and there's nothing I can do about the challenges that he has in the system and he just recently got transferred to a new facility where things have been a little bit different uh, and he writes in his letter I, I pulled up some of his quotes um, one of the most hopeful things that I've read in a long time and he writes this I can tell you from what I'm experiencing hearing and witnessing that stuff and by stuff I mean the ACE score the healing of trauma etc is making its way into the California prison system. These programs and classes exist in here, but due to COVID, they're not being run right now. But the shift has already has the shift has started from prison being warehouses to hospitals, places where healing, redemption and restoration can happen. Hopefully this trend continues and expands. I'm starting to realize and believe that God loves prisoners. He came to heal, save and restore men like the ones I'm with, those who know they are sick and who realize their need for a savior. I have a hard time reading that without tearing up because in the previous letters, he just could not, he didn't seem to have a capacity for any sense that he was loved, that there was hope, that there was any sense of place to go because the philosophy that he was under previously was pure, punitive. You're serving your time because you did a bad thing. And so why should I treat you good at all in this system? And this letter um, is really the one that made me reach out to you (laughs) because I feel like the work that you're doing is phenomenal. And if more of us all across the spectrum could do this, this would be a radical transformation of all of our humanities like the people the politicians that use criminality as a political cudgel those of us who use criminality and fear um, and scapegoating as a self-justification we would all be radically changed 
by this. So thank you so much for what you're doing. And I, I guess my question is, so I'm a regular person who votes. What can I do to support, encourage, change the conversation, help make more of this happen within the criminal justice system? And then of course, life in general. Um, I would say like probably the most, like if every single person who was listening to this and then they told 10 friends is they to start working on your own violence. Like what is the violence inside of you that you haven't worked on? Um, I'm serious like that, that would change the world if we all started taking accountability for where we're not being accountable, um, where we're not, where we're not being kind, we're not, we're not being loving. Um, and, uh, you know, I still have to work on mine for sure. I can be brusque or whatever, but I think also, um, I, you know, come to come to compassion prison project and volunteer, but the only problem we have right now with, with that request is we need an infrastructure. We need people there. We have 1500 volunteers, but we don't know what to do with them because I can't stop to, to, to tell them how to help. And so we need people to come in, that we can hire who can tell them how to help because we could have an army of, I don't like using army, but we could have a, a cadre of amazing people going into prisons with us if we had more help. So I'm asking for some more help. Yeah. Um, you know, major donations. That's what we need. We need major millions of donate millions of dollars of donations and for us to work on our own violence. That's what we got to do because it's that awareness that when you start, when you start calming down, other people start calming down. Mm. It has, it, it, it actually helps. To, it does change the world. It does. It's changed my family. I can tell you this right now. And um, my, my son is in better shape. My husband's in better shape. I'm in better shape. My dog's in better shape, except occasionally not, but <laughs> he's doing his job. Um, but it's, it is these little micro compassions that change the world. Just like the microaggressions you know, they say in, I've been reading David Hawkins a lot. I don't know if you know David Hawkins, but you don't know David Hawkins? Mm. Oh, okay. Well, we got to talk about that. Um, but he says there's a file on each one of us and if all the good things we do are being recorded and all the, all the negative things we're doing. So let's start filling that file with some really great acts because like Marianne Williamson says, we are spectacular and we're just afraid of that shine. We're afraid to just really see what we're, what we're capable of. And I just think, I think, you know, let's go. Let's really, God, we're just so glorious, mm. all of us. And just, just to be in that glory of who we are. Why are we holding it back? You know, we're just, it's like we're being little and, and snarky and pissed off. And it's covered up that, that glory of every single one of us. That's and that's why I go to prisons because they show it to me like that. They're like, okay, I say to them, you're amazing, and they say it right back. Yeah, it's so good for the ego. Yeah, we have a couple questions from Slider. That was brilliant. Thank you so much, um, Jimmy. Let's uh, throw up some of these questions. Here's question number one um, from the Slido from our audience that's watching. What is the political roadmap for turning prisons into healing centers? What actions can grassroots constituents take to make the most impact? Hmm. I'm working on that myself. Um, I think, I think we we've got to make sure the district attorneys are, are compassionate. 
I also think we have to deal with the sheriffs and make sure the sheriffs are are doing their job and not and not allowing for we have to okay 95% of the people in prison are coming home how do we want them to come home to us and and like you were saying you know they just want to lock them up yeah tough on crime but it's also systemic we also have to deal with the systemic problems of poverty you know poverty gandhi says poverty is the worst form of violence and this is this is our societal neglect that we're doing um every one of those gang members that are in prison were impoverished and destroyed by their parents because their parents were destroyed and people don't know how to get out of it and so this whole bootstrap mentality we got to get some boots in there first let's get some boots and some um you know let's stop you know saying you know they deserve it because they, if they can't get their act together they deserve it i know this is a very liberal stance but i i i really think that it we really got to get in there and and change it with our divine abilities right yeah you said liberal um why do you say that is is not anything that is just merely effective does it have to sit in a particular political category no, well, I was saying, you know, a lot of people, a lot, I don't know, I think you're right. Yes, I'm going to say yes. And I said, say liberal because, um, and I know Jesus wanted to, to help the poor. So I think that's, I think, I think it's Christian. And I think it's a Buddhist. I think it's all religions. Yeah. And, um, but I think, I think people get resentful that for handouts, the handouts feel like they're, it's, it's yeah. not where's my handout if they're getting it, and yeah, we have to work on that too. We got to take care yeah. of everybody. But I know it's yeah. a big. I'm sorry that was that was also a very leading question. <laughs> um, yeah, Jesus had a lot to say about that as well. You know, about uh, people not uh, people expecting a certain level of fairness to which compassion and grace does not play fair in that particular way. Uh, question number two from the Slido: What other models for actual rehabilitation and healing exist? perhaps in specific communities, other countries, et cetera. How do you think we could get there? Well, um, the Norway model is um, one of the things they're bringing to California right now. Mm. Um, two prisons, Valley State Prison and Salinas Valley State Prison, both um, both are experimenting with the Norway model, which I think is fantastic. They have a thing called dynamic security, where what is dynamic is that you have a relationship. The officers, and they're called coaches, the coaches have a relationship with the residents instead of the officer, you know, telling somebody to go somewhere. They say, Hey, we're going to go, we're going to go to, you know, medical right now. Let's go, let's go, Fred. So it's, you create a, a relationship, but you don't, it's not um, paramilitary mm. like we have it set up in the United States. That's amazing. Question three, and then we'll take one more after this. Um, Oh, I got Sean's question up there. Question three. Sorry, Sean. <laughs> question three from Slido. Well, let me let me let me throw Sean a bone. He's taking notes. Build alliance with sheriffs. Build alliance with DAs. So thank you, Sean, for taking notes. Question three. Um, how do you know if someone deserves a second chance? Um, if you ask me, we all deserve a second chance. All of us. We've all done wrong. We've all we're all criminals in our own little ways. I I have. I have a rap sheet that is, that's pretty, pretty substantial. So I think, um, I think we all deserve a second chance. I also think there are, 
I also think there are people in prison that need to stay there. So a second chance for them may look like um, having a nice day, having a good life, mm. having a, you know a better life. I, I don't say let's take everybody out of there. I say let's get them out when they're ready. Mm. And that because they have a sentence for 50 years doesn't mean they need to be there. Mm. If they're ready in 10 years, let's get them back out there because those guys are, are more ready to work, more ready to give back than anybody on the street that I've ever met. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate that. That's really helpful. I mean, again, the, the definitions that we hold, second chance means that, okay, you're free to go, but that's not, that doesn't have to be the only definition that we hold to. So I so appreciate all, all the nuance that you bring to this. Um, our last question, then we'll bring it to a close. You mentioned that you don't want prisons. What would you recommend instead? So healing centers and um, community centers and places, places where it's a porous interaction where you can you're not in your little um your, your little cage that you're you're living in like an ikea a lot of these prisons in norway look like ikea showrooms so you're living in your little ikea place and you you're hungry for knowledge and you're going to school and you're really getting your brain back you're getting your brain back so you or you're getting your brain for the first time hmm. so you can be functioning a pro-social pro human being you know anti-social behavior is because because nobody paid attention to you as a little child. And so these are places where you're getting the socializing that you need and you're getting, you're getting your spiritual, um, physical and emotional needs met. I can imagine, I, I wanna now ask you about the economics of it because I can imagine that the amount of money that we're spending could probably be far better, more, more efficient and better for everybody across the board and we would spend less of it. Is there a short answer to that economic question? Well, California is spending like $16 billion right now a year and um, $3.51 goes to meals for the people in prison. So mm. the, it's very out of balance. There is no short answer. Um, mm. But what we're spending now um, would go down a lot if we put these programs in place yeah. or when, when, when we put these programs in place. When, coming in. Yes. when you do, that's we're doing right. it. That's fantastic. It's Ladies and gentlemen, Fritzy Horstman, Compassion Prison Project. Um, you're, you're, you are one of my heroes, Fritzy. Thank you so much. I so appreciate you taking the time, sharing your wisdom and insight, um, but most of all for the work that you are doing. And thank you for having a conversation with us. Uh, this evening. And our prayer is that your tribe and your influence would just continue to increase. Um, you're making a real difference. And I've, I've got the receipts to prove it. And I'm so thankful for what my friend is experiencing. And I'm profoundly grateful for the work that you're doing, for inspiring me and for inspiring all of us. Thank you. Thank you so, so much, much, Kevin. It's so great to talk with you. All right, friends. Have a good night, everybody. And we will see you next time for our next conversation. Bye, everybody.